You are cordially invited to a long-expected party. Join us, my brother, my captain, my podcast, in our Twitter space on Saturday, April 2nd at 9 p.m. Greenwich Median Time or 4 p.m. Eastern Time as we reflect back on the magic that is the Fellowship of the Ring in the best way we know how, by watching it. Strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Rings trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. I'm going to Mordor alone. Of course you are. And I'm coming with you. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Breaking of the Fellowship, the concluding scenes from 2001's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough. We will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. So you may be wondering why we spent the last episode, the penultimate episode of our Fellowship of the Ring coverage, talking about the film's ending. It's because we want to spend today talking about the performance of masculinity in these movies. Not only is it worthy of consideration on its own merits, but it had a profound, profound effect on me when these movies came out. We'll get to that in a bit. I want to take a second here to go through a brief, brief, brief history of masculinity. As before, this is going to be a primarily Anglosphere-oriented history, not just because the books and films are both part of the American-British imperial milieu, but because the history of masculinity is wildly different outside the Anglosphere. Masculinity in France or Sri Lanka, for example, have very discrete stories and necessitate different analyses. I'm going to start by saying something that I'm immediately going to caveat, which is this. Masculinity has gotten markedly more internally violent and confining over the past 150 years. This is not to say there was a good old days of soft masculinity. There was not. But masculinity such as we understand it now is a vastly different thing to masculinity in even the 1930s, let alone the medieval era from whence this story draws much of its inspiration. In the Anglosphere in particular, Religion also plays a deeply important role in creating different forms of masculinity, and while I'm not going to tell you to go read Weber's Protestant work ethic in the spirit of capitalism, if the stuff we're talking about here interests you, that is a good place to start. There's a fascinating microhistory to be told in the story and evolution of men crying and men's tears. The tears of men were not always seen as an abhorrent weakness. A weakness, perhaps, but not one to be discouraged. In John 11.35, upon hearing the testimonials of the family of Lazarus, Jesus quite literally wept. His tears are used in the Bible as a show of his inherent moral goodness, inextricably linked to his ability to feel and show emotion on behalf of mankind. For much of Christian history, there is a broadly similar attitude towards tears, at least in theory if not in practice. 
St. Augustine in his Confessions, for example, often talks about being overwhelmed to the point of tears by the Spirit of God. Dante in his Divine Comedy and La Vida Nuova weeps often and openly. In Beowulf, Rothgar cries from gratitude when Beowulf saves his people. The list of men who weep in medieval literature is long. King Arthur, Sir Gawain, Troilus, Lancelot, Tristan, so on and so forth. Then, sometime around the 18th century, something very strange happened. To very poorly and inadequately paraphrase Karl Marx, some bad shit happened and then capitalism existed. In places like Britain, which never had a truly liberal liberal democratic revolution, my apologies to the people who think that the English Civil War was that, the burgeoning bourgeois class never became a wholly discreet class to the archaic feudal aristocracy. There were differences, of course, and I don't want to underplay that, but the British bourgeoisie didn't destabilize ancien regime feudalism as it did in France. As such, it needed to establish, establish its cultural prominence using more than just guillotines and Frisian caps. It needed to develop its own cultural and intellectual personality. It did so through a turn towards the desperately rational. Emotional sensitivity was eschewed as an inefficiency, a deviance, a sign of moral weakness. The tears of men were relegated to the realm of aristocrats, and later in the Victorian era, only poets. Men's emotions, or lack thereof, became tethered to morality in a markedly different way than the previous 1800 years of history. But as I said, there is a religious element to this. The British bourgeoisie was, with very few exceptions, a Protestant bourgeoisie. And we don't have the time to get into the entire history of the Reformation, but suffice it to say that the emotional and cultural divergences absolutely appeared between British Protestants and Catholics. And this is where things get really interesting. British Catholics didn't entirely sign up to this cult of unemotionality. Or at least not at first. Tolkien's works are an excellent example of this, but so too are those of Evelyn Waugh and G.K. Chesterton. This is not to say that this happy, liberated, sensitive masculinity we all want existed in these Catholic men and thinkers. Very, very, very far from that. But it is a clear contrast to the more unemotional form of masculinity that ruled British Protestantism. Throughout the 20th century, particularly spurred by the world wars and the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, masculinity became more conservative than ever. The rise of American evangelism in the 1970s and 80s and the profoundly evil response to the AIDS crisis also drove forward newer, more torturous definitions of masculinity. The linking of emotional openness to sexual deviance, or in non-evangelical language, being gay, helped to reinforce this notion of masculinity as a cage. In our episode on Brian Strider, I talked about rugged individualism, libertarianism, and their impact on masculinity. The meteoric rise of neoliberalism, with its doctrinal anti-state approach to politics, helps to solidify the hegemony of this closed masculinity. Men are and must always be businessmen, and businessmen don't cry. There's much to be said on the relationship of working-class masculinity to bourgeois aristocratic masculinity in this century, and I have done some writing on it, but we don't have time for all the details here. What's ultimately important is that the 1990s are in many ways the apex of conservative, suffocating masculinity, despite the veneer of progressivism slapped on the decade by its mostly deranged proponents. When The Lord of the Rings is being filmed in the latter half of this decade, masculinity as a social identity in prison is almost as cruel and as inescapable as it has ever been. So, a couple disclaimers up top. 
I am not a scholar of gender studies or really of anything. A lot of what I speak to is how I feel about these moments now, but more importantly then, when in the world of 2001, hypermasculinity was all the rage and the word gay was still used as a pejorative. Secondly, there have been some articles written about the tender masculinity of the Lord of the Rings films that I will draw from and want to credit. Zev Shavit has an article at Polygon about it, and Gretchen Felker-Martin wrote a public post over at her Patreon as well. Side note, Gretchen is incredible, by the way, one of my favorite indie writers and critics, especially for horror, and her new book Manhunt just dropped, which is getting rave reviews. So go check it out, and you can follow her over at Scumbelievable on Twitter. And well, a couple more caveats. Though we will talk about gender and gender performance in the binary sense, please note that this is not an endorsement of the binary, and in my opinion, the concept of gender as it exists in the Anglosphere is highly dubious, in part for the reasons Emily just laid out for you. I also want to point out that the films don't make any characters explicitly gay, despite the fact that we are talking about this in context of where attitudes were on queer culture at the time. The end of the 90s and early aughts were a time of uh, vibe shifts in terms of queer acceptance. And though I say, quote unquote, queer acceptance, the focus was very much on cis white gay men. In my opinion, society was, and still is, hostile to queer folk, but the turn of the century is generally viewed as when attitudes were shifting in a positive manner. Still, the pop culture landscape was incoherent on this front. We were starting to get shows like Will and Grace, and every sitcom in the late 90s basically did a gay friend episode. Yet the word gay was still used pejoratively, and other other words much worse, I won't say on mic. And the traditional performance of masculinity was unchanged. Male leads still embodied the masculine ideals as prescribed by white patriarchy. The M.O. for most dudes was to make fun of each other, to be unrelenting dicks and pull pranks on each other, and make up new weird curse words to fling at each other. This was considered male camaraderie. My core high school friends, however, were not like that. And, you know, for the record, we were all cis men. We would ride on each other when we fucked up, but I can think of more nights when we talked about how much we loved each other, how cool we thought we were, which we weren't, (laughs) that we'd always be pals while gazing at the stars from our suburban backyards. And I thought that was normal, until I went to college and joined a fraternity, where I still made key male friendships, but I started seeing how other boys interacted with each other, and it was in that nagging, abrasive way I described earlier. So that's kind of the world where the world and I was at this moment in time of pop culture. We perhaps subconsciously understood that the boundaries of male performance were bullshit, but all facets of society still reflected traditional masculinity back at us as an ideal. And that gets us to fellowship and this movie trilogy. Lord of the Rings was one of the first times I remember seeing a performance of masculinity that wasn't driven by competition, denigration, or a lack of intimacy. It showed me a path towards being a man that felt more in line with my values of how I wanted to be and be seen, which is as a sweetie, of course. (laughs) And not just that these films showed guys hugging and holding hands and crying on each other, but that this movie literally climaxed with that. Twice! Boromir's last words to Aragorn are incredibly profound and touching, which we will break down in our analysis. But it's sealed with a kiss on the forehead, a little boop that serves as an act of respect and love, sealing a promise to be kept. And these aren't just men, well, they are, but they are men in every sense of the word as it applies to narrative fiction. These are two honored warriors, known for acts hewing towards heroic masculinity. 
They are big and strong and have beards, and kingdoms rise and fall on their backs. And well, I guess the hobbits aren't men either, but the second half of this film's climax is Sam joining Frodo on the journey east, literally memorialized by their hands wrapping around each other as Frodo pulls Sam out of the water. Again, we will go into this in our analysis, but seeing a tear-filled Samwise saying he won't leave Frodo no matter what, that he'd follow him, his brother, his baggins, his king, <laughs> deeply moving stuff to me. Obviously, these films embrace violence as a solution, but not the solution, more so than the text. In many ways, it was just capitalizing on pop culture and blockbuster trends broadly, but to me, it actually works better that we can see these dudes go from fighting with sword and spear to holding each other in love or fear. As Gretchen says in her piece, the men in Lord of the Rings are, in some ways, recognizable to modern American audiences. They hold courage on the battlefield in high esteem, leave housework and child-rearing largely to women, and control laws, armies, and wealth throughout most of Middle-earth. In other ways, they are a world apart. They grieve without pretense, express love and fealty to each other in romantic terms, and think deeply on the beauty and terror of the world around them. They are, in fundamental ways, connected to each other. Back to me, Manu. This isn't unique to just Lord of the Rings. Uh, I also think the simple idea of fellowship, a company mattering, goes against a lot of the individualized perceptions of heroes of that era. Yeah, Luke Skywalker has pals, but attachments are a problem. James Bond, he has no friends. Neo has Trinity and Morpheus, maybe, but when you're a Christ-like messiah, you are alone in more ways than not. But the bonds of a group of men matter so much in The Lord of the Rings. There's a reason I fall apart when the Fellowship reunites before Aragorn's coronation, because I can feel what this company means to each other. And that's the end of my emotional plea about the masculinity in these films. But I kind of got to end on a downer because I think it's worth highlighting Emily's comments about the performance of femininity in these films when we discussed Arwen in episode 9, Flight to the Fords. For as much praise as I want to give these films on the front of masculinity, it is worth noting that they do fall short in the converse. Come to it at last. The final scenes of Fellowship. And we are starting out with a bang. Aragorn has sent Frodo off and now stares down Saruman's horde. 
The odds of successfully navigating a Urukai battalion is approximately 3,720 to 1. <laughs> Nevertheless, Aragorn raises his sword like a cross, not unlike the Nazgul, and yells, Never tell me the odds. It's an all-out brawl at Amon Hen, as Aragorn starts cutting his way through the opposition. The camera cuts back and forth between Strider and Lertz, portending our final battle of this film. The Song of Steel does not go unnoticed. Sam, who is still searching for Frodo, hears the unmistakable sound of swords clashing and redoubles his efforts to find his master. Lurtz barks out the command, Find the halfling! And the Uruks start to search the area. Aragorn tackles a group of them, shouting, Elendil! But leaves himself exposed to attack. That is, until his boys arrive. <laughs> Legolas and Gimli shoot on screen, with bow and axe coming to aid the future king of Gondor. Go, shouts Legolas, instructing Aragorn to Frodo's defense. Frodo runs through the trees at Parth Galen, stumbles, and takes refuge behind a giant tree. Across the way, Merry and Pippin have found themselves a nice-sized hobbit hole to hide in and beckon Frodo over to them. Frodo responds with a sad but determined head shake. He's leaving. No! Run, Frodo. Go on. Hey! Hey, you! Over here! Hey! Over here! This way! Man, hobbits really are amazing creatures. You can learn all that there is to know about them in two and a half hours, yet in the final scene, they can still surprise you. Merry and Pippin take Frodo's tail and lead the Uruks away, giving the ring-bearer a clean path to the western shore. Unfortunately for Merry and Pip, though, when you play the role of bait, your job is to get caught. The hobbits find themselves in between Uruk and a hard place, with Saruman's <laughs> troops surrounding them. But wait! AEW announcer Jim Ross were ever to provide a live commentary track, right now he'd be saying, by God, that's Boromir's music, <laughs> as he rushes to the halfling's defense, literally grabbing an axe out of a dude's hand and then axing the dude with his own axe. Gnarly. <laughs> Elsewhere, the three hunters are keeping busy with the Uruks of their own until a horn blast rings out. Three quick horn blasts. The horn of Gondor. Boromir calls for aid, and Aragorn will answer. The horn doesn't just herald friends to Boromir, but foes as well. The Urukai close in on Boromir, Merry, and Pippin. From a distance, slowly, Lurtz steps into frame, bow in hand. Steal your emotions accordingly, you know what comes next. With a thrum and a whoosh, an arrow finds Boromir right above his heart. An arrow finds Boromir? Why am I phrasing this like pro propaganda? <laughs> Lurtz gives a satisfied grunt as Boromir falls to his knees, Merry and Pippin standing mouth agape. Though, it shall be written, a single arrow is not enough to fell Boromir, son of Gondor. He keeps fighting, taking down a half dozen soldiers before a second bolt enters his gut. This time he falls face to face with Merry and Pippin, both stunned in horror. Resolved, Boromir lunges again, taking out another Uruk. He doesn't even see the third arrow. 
Boromir is defeated, on his knees, the horn of Gondor cleaved and hanging about his neck. The pack of Uruks make off with the screaming hobbits, while Lurtz pulls up to the dying Boromir, knocking the final arrow. But before he can loose, Aragorn arrives. Eh, you can tell Emily's anti-Aragorn propaganda is working on me. I gave Boromir the heroic needle drop, but none for Strider. <laughs> a quick, albeit brutal, duel takes place. Lurtz coming out of the battle short one arm and one head. Which barely stops rolling before Aragorn rushes over to Boromir on his deathbed here in Parth Galen. They took the little ones, he informs him. He tried to take the ring, he admits as well. Poor Boromir, getting hung with the biggest L's of his life in quick succession. Very relatable, though. Look, we like to be jokey and irreverent here, but there's a reason we named this podcast what we did. So here's Boromir's death in full, and be sure to do the Leo pointing at the TV meme when he says the name of the podcast. I have failed you all. No, Boromir. You fought bravely. You have kept your honor. Leave it. It is over. The world of men will fall. And all will come to darkness. And my city to ruin. <laughs> I do not know what strength is in my blood. But I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. Nor our people fail. Be at peace, son of Gondor, Aragorn says, giving him a kiss on the forehead. Legolas and Gimli have arrived, standing vigil to Aragorn's eulogy. In Gimli's own words, you'll find more cheer in a graveyard. At last now we return to the ringbearer, a lone sentinel on the western shore, eyes to the east. He holds the ring in his open hand, almost like he's offering it up to Mordor. I don't want any part of this, he thinks. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. You know, I heard somewhere the ones whom we love never truly leave us. Gandalf lives on in Frodo's memory, and that is an encouraging thought. Determined, resolute, a teary-eyed Frodo puts the ring in his pocket, pushes out one of the boat, and makes for the eastern shore. Sam catches up to him. Well, tries to anyway, but Sam, like most hobbits, can't swim. He sinks to the bottom of Nan Hithowell un- until Frodo's arm splashes into frame and pulls him into the boat. 
Sam made a promise to Gandalf, and by gum, he's going to stick to it. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli give as proper a funeral as they can to Boromir. They load his body onto one of the boats and send him over the Great Falls of Raros, which, if you recall, was prominently featured in the lament for Boromir. Strider has received an equipment upgrade, too. He now wears Boromir's Vam braces, ordained with the White Tree of Gondor. He's taking his first step at putting aside the ranger and becoming who he was born to be. Frodo and Sam make it to the far banks, and Legolas preps their own transport. But Aragorn means not to follow them. They are a bigger liability within Frodo's presence than without. The elves keep piling up. Merry and Pippin kidnapped, Boromir dead. The ringbearer heads to the Shadowland with only his gardener in tow. Gimli says what we're all thinking. The fellowship has failed. What if we hold true to each other? We will not abandon Merry and Pippin to torment and death. Not while we have strength left. Leave all that can be spared behind. We travel light. Let us hunt some walk. <laughs> Across the lake, Frodo and Sam arrive at Emun Muil, looking upon Mordor in the distance. And with words of hope for friends and love for each other, we have, at 21 episodes, finally arrived at the end of 2001's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Sam. I'm glad you're with me. Hey, we did it. We finished the first film and the first two books. We definitely do have one more episode, at least about Fellowship of the Ring, where we wrap it up and possibly a couple more if we can get a couple more subscribers over at patreon.com slash bomb. So a lot of what we, maybe just me, celebrate about the Lord of the Rings films on its surface is the heroics depicted within. In the scope of blockbuster cinema, Heroics are often associated with aggression, violence, or martial prowess. And Lord of the Rings has a ton of those moments too, don't get me wrong. But it also depicts other type of heroics. Kindness, restitution, sacrifice are some examples. The various no-chance, no-choice moments our characters face in these three movies. Frodo deciding to go alone to Mordor, or a sobbing Sam taking another step up the stair, or Pippin refusing to let Boromir's death go and pledging himself to Denethor. Maybe it's no mistake that so many of these moments are Hobbit-related, because I want to talk about Merry and Pippin's sacrifice here, a great moment that perhaps gets lost amongst the other iconic moments in this film's finish. I want to call back to our fourth episode, Shortcut to Mushrooms. In that episode, the Hobbits are ducking and hiding in the underbrush as they try to leave the Shire and escape their pursuers, the Nazgul in that case. At that moment, though not bound by any oath or purpose, Merry and Pippin bind themselves to Frodo and get him to Buckleberry Ferry. Here, at the end of All Things Fellowship, we get a mimetic copy of that earlier scenario. 
Frodo needs to get the F out of Dodge, and Merry and Pippin beckon him to their hiding spot, again in the bushes and trees, perfect hobbit hiding holes. Frodo shakes his head no, and realization starts to dawn on Merry, whose general canniness is a good and solid characterization throughout these films. He was the first to suss out that the Nazgul were after Frodo back in the Shire, and he's quick to realize Frodo is not just saying no to the hiding spot, he's saying no to the fellowship. He's leaving, Merry Adok blurts out. Pippin, the more impulsive of the two, barely thinks before he rushes out into the open. Foolish, maybe, but foolish courage for sure, as he's against the idea of leaving Frodo to go on his own. Merry pops up to grab Pippin, but at this point it's too late. They have been spotted by the Uruks. Merry's wherewithal rears its head again here. It takes him two seconds to realize that they can lure the Uruks away from Frodo, giving him a clean path to the water and the lands beyond the river. It's hardly one of the more bombastic line readings, but Mary's confident whispering, Go, Frodo, just sticks with me. Never a wavering in purpose or bravery, regardless of whatever fears he may hold. But to quote another Sean Bean fantasy character, when a person is afraid is the only time he can be brave. There's also something unique in the two divergent reactions from Mary and Pippin that I want to highlight. I mentioned last episode that I feel like fellowship is the childhood and teenage years of this story. And I think in a lot of ways that's best summarized by what's going on with Mary and Pippin here. Pippin, as I've said before, truly is a childlike character in all ways. Even at the end of the story, when he's become battled wearied, he still retains that childlike sense of joy and wonder. Mary, though certainly less haggard and tired than Frodo, is slightly older than Pippin and fulfills the role of a teenager quite well. The bond between Mary and Pippin to me is really reminiscent of the friendship between Steve Harrington and Dustin in Stranger Things. It's not a begrudging, conflictual sibling relationship. It's genuine friendship between a teenager and a kid, where they are sometimes on the same psychological level and sometimes not. And that's why I find their sacrifice here so poignant. It's the moment at which childhood literally is sacrificed on the altar of war. It's a necessary sacrifice, more evident here than in the books, though it isn't less true in the books. But it makes this ultimate point that in a world where war exists, in a world with moral fallibility essentially, a world after the fall of man, childlike innocence cannot last forever. There will be a moment when you have to reckon with the terrifying reality of the world around you. You will have to summon your courage, and you will have to sacrifice that innocence for the greater good. And it's not to say that the better elements of childhood cannot stay. Pippin and Mary alike maintain their good humor and their ability to spread joy. But that sheltering from the harsh realities has to go. The last thing I want to highlight about this exchange is just how little dialogue there is here, despite the amount of information and emotion that's communicated. Frodo doesn't say a single word and only shakes his head in terms of communication. Everything else is in the eyes, the tightening of his mouth, and the lived-in relationship that exists between these Hobbit characters. You feel the richness and depth of their long friendships, though we've only borne witness to it for about two and a half hours. This is a really great point because it speaks, I think, um, to the advantages of certain adaptive media over others. Like You couldn't necessarily convey this as effectively in a book as you could in a film. And we talked about this at the start of this podcast in the context of Mary's speech to Frodo at Crick Hollow um, and how certain things are more necessary or possible in books versus films. And this is a mirror image of that. The main event of today's episode is the death of Boromir, which can be divided into two parts. One is Lurtz hitting him with arrows while he continues to defend the Wee Ones, and the other is his goodbye to Aragorn. 
There's an intermission in there where Aragorn fights Lurtz, which we'll talk about later this episode, but I think the intermission is key to the pacing of these sequences. It's why we can revel in these moments separately while still experiencing a full range of catharsis. Let's talk about the first half of the scene, with Lurtz walking up and putting his arrows in Boromir. In the background of both archer and archery target, there are statues here on, here on the borders of Gondor. It just reminds us that this was a place that people once lived, before evil made it unsafe to do so. There's history here at Parth Galen and Amon Hen, and Boromir's fall is just another notch on the timeline. That first arrow buries itself in Boromir, and everything stops. We see Merry and Pippin in disbelief, and well, Boromir is too. But his will is strong, his courage unwavering, and he keeps fighting, taking down several more Urukai. A second arrow arrives, and Boromir falls to his knees. But it puts him face to face with Merry and Pippin, still in shock, which gives him resolve to keep going. On his knees, he continues the fight and slowly gets up. Boromir doesn't even see the third arrow, and neither do we. We just hear the familiar whoosh of the arrow and can see a third shaft sprouting from Boromir at the edges of frame. We get a point of view shot from Boromir. We watch Uruk Booch trample past as they gather up the hobbits to take back to Isengard. The music here is overpowering, their little halfling yells and the fall of Uruk feet. But one Uruk is not running. His boots walk slowly into frame to square up Boromir. I think back to last week when we discussed Aragorn's boots stepping into frame to confront Frodo. I feel a kinship with the focus on boots here. The dialogue between Aragorn and Boromir here at the end is all iconic, which is why I pretty much played it all for you during the recap. Boromir in this moment feels like he's taken a series of unforgivable L's. He tried to take the ring, he couldn't protect the hobbits, he failed the fellowship, he may have doomed Gondor and all of humanity to shadow. Boromir seems to be going to his grave with nothing but doom on his mind, but this is where Aragorn steps up as our hero for this tale, which I'm so sorry I'm <laughs> Aragorn is honest here, still riddled with doubts. I do not know what strength is in my blood, conveys some of that, but I do like that now he's talking about the strength in him here at the end. Back in Rivendell, he was talking about the weakness that flows through his veins. And when I talk about liking this stuff about Aragorn talking about the strength and weakness in his blood, please note that I am, probably incorrectly, thinking of that in the more poetic or romantic sense. He surely means his blood lineage, the strength of kings, and weakness of a Isildur, but I think there's space for both interpretations. Or, fuck you, I'm making space, I don't care. <laughs> but Aragorn's words of our people are the ones that resonate with Boromir. A statement of solidarity, of shared history and purpose that helps prepare him for death. And I put in the notes here that I fully expect Emily to be like, our people, Aragorn? Who the fuck? <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck did you, did you do to call Gondor your people? Yes, and that is correct. That is an absolutely correct like uh, prediction of what I was going to say, because uh, Aragorn has, like, he's, okay, whatever. He may have served in, like, one or two minor battles in Plaragir, who cares? He fucked off for 60 years around that. It's really not his thing, and he's been a total dick to the people of Gondor since literally since the minute we figured out that he was king. None of this horse shit, Aragorn. It is like fucking valor stealing. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess, oh boy. Just to keep the like on brand L's going for me, um, I'm going to uh well, all right, whatever, here we go. 
it's going to be really on brand, but I'm going to literally dunk on the title um, of this podcast. You know, no gods, no horse masters. I think I've mentioned at various points in the previous episodes, but like for me, the overemphasis on Aragorn and his kingship in the films kind of sucks. And to illustrate this, here's Boromir's death in the books. Aragorn knelt beside him. Boromir opened his eyes and strove to speak. At last, slow words came. I tried to take the ring from Frodo, he said. I am sorry. I have paid. His glance strayed to his fallen enemies. Twenty at least lay there. They have gone, the halflings. The orcs have taken them. I think they are not dead. Orcs bound them. He paused and his eyes closed wearily. After a moment, he spoke again. Farewell, Aragorn. Go to Menas Tirith and save my people. I have failed. No, said Aragorn, taking his hand and kissing his brow. You have conquered. Few have gained such a victory. Be at peace. Menas Tirith shall not fall. Boromir smiled. Which way did they go? Was Frodo there? said Aragorn. But Boromir did not speak again. Alas, said Aragorn, thus passes the heir of Denethor, lord of the Tower of Guard. This is a bitter end. Now the company is all in ruin. It is I that has failed. Vain was Gandalf's trust in me. What shall I do now? Boromir has laid it on me to go to Minas Tirith, and my heart desires it. But where are the ring and the bearer? How shall I find them and save the quest from disaster? To me, at least, it's pretty obvious from those lines why they changed it. Aragorn doesn't come off as well here, and to be honest, he comes off as pretty self-involved and self-focused. I think there's a case to be made that you could have made Aragorn less of a narcissist like he is in the books, without placing quite so much emphasis on needing everybody to swear fealty to him and his kingship like they do in the movies. Yeah, I think that's a valid reading, although I don't think it's one that I particularly take away from these scenes because it I don't think Aragorn's necessarily demanding it of Boromir or anyone in these films. I think a lot of that self-doubt is probably some of that softening of that point. But um, I also just... See, it's it's just weird because I know this is wrong, but like with this and really the original Star Wars trilogy, I understand the politics underneath them, but I still view the stories as somewhat totemic in nature, um, that these are just kind of like all-encompassing fantasy stories with kings and knights and stuff like that. Um, so I never like put much stock into the politics of monarchy in these films, especially living in the end of history of <laughs> 1990s or whatever you want to call it. So I don't think I necessarily disagree with the take. It's just, it's never, it's not a way that I would, that would never be my avenue of analysis into it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because yeah. I just don't have that perception, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think it's one of these things for me where I like, because I'm spending so much time like thinking about the books and like, um, because the books for me, like we talked about last episode, are like the foundation. It, once there's any sort of change at all between like the books and whatever the adaptation is, I'm like, okay, well, if you change this, why can't you then change X, Y, and Z? And like, if you've decided, you know, if you've decided that this thing isn't important, then why is it that you've decided this thing is important instead? And, and so I'm kind of like, I kind of all unravels from there. Um, and, you know, I mean, it is a hell of a line, <laughs> like there is a reason <laughs> it's the, it's the title of the podcast. Um, but I think there's just this, this, 
thing to me that's always really interesting, which is like you say, why in the 1990s at the end of history, is there this kind of hyper focus on um, like uh, essentially like kind of passive royalism? You know, the books are like really active royalism and and Tolkien sets out to write uh, I, like I don't want to say propaganda because I think people tend to like um, – uh, like kind of uh, assume a certain level of kind of sloppiness to propaganda. But like Tolkien sets out to write a parable and a story about why a monarchy is good and why it is the thing that God wants for the world. Um, and that is like a really active take of like royalist uh, thinking. And it's then surprising to me that like in the 1990s, um, the films take this more sort of passive royalism and i also sort of wonder if like it's especially shocking to me because i'm like well okay maybe maybe i'll get in trouble maybe i will not get myself in trouble rather but like you know if if you're kiwis if you're in new zealand if you're in australia like the, your monarch doesn't even live in the same continent as you like like that's like really sad that you would like effectively simp for uh uh like a, a completely like distinct and and uncaring sort of monarch and i know that this isn't like a you know aragorn is not queen elizabeth ii but like there is that sort of like if you've got this actual concrete example of a monarch in your life and then you turn around and make art that like however passively supports a a, a monarchy like you have to kind of deal with that connection that connectivity um and it's always kind of surprising to me given that um but i guess like i, I get the benefit of uh having grown up after these films and and having grown up uh thinking that brits and uh the queen are uh i'm gonna self-censor here and not say anymore so that i don't get deported <laughs> yeah and I, I don't want to pretend that what i'm about to say has any kind of academic or critical integrity but i some of it is also like you know cinema is kind of a new art form relatively um you know it's just a little over a hundred years old at this point and I, or maybe like 125, but I think we never got like that kind of like base fantasy story that really felt like, like, you know, we live in the age of like deconstructions, interrogations, or like, you know, a satirical take on something that was, you know, in the pre in the past viewed as kind of like basic. Um, that's, you know, kind of like Lord of the Rings was that kind of like foundational, like most traditional fantasy movie in the realm of film. Like, because we got that, then we started getting things like A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones. Um, so, like, it almost felt like for us, we needed the Lord of the Rings films at the time to be the most basic kind of Arthuriana version of the yeah. story. Um, just like, you know, straight up heroes, kings, evil goblin. Like, when I talk about them in Blockbuster, a part of it is somewhat of an insult in that it is definitely flattening a lot of the politics and some of the key thematic thrusts, but in favor of making a more violent action-y kind of take on it. But that's also kind of, I used the word totemic earlier. It's like if you told a five-year-old to dream up a story of like kings and knights, it would be closer to this because, you know, the kings and knights are generally the good people um, and the villains are all bad and look like monsters. Um, and, you know, subsequent to the Lord of the Rings, the books and the film is when we start getting things that tend to muddle that a little more. And I think as you've done during the course of this podcast is pointing out that that complexity is there in Tolkien's work and that a lot of it was just, whether for economy of cinematics or ideology, just not existent in the films. 
Yeah, I think that newness of cinema is actually a really good point and something that I hadn't necessarily thought about. But like, I think the Lord of the Rings are kind of um, a, a film series that, um, you know, their, their primary thesis is, is is concerned with like the the thrust or the like uh, form and function of cinema. Um, and and uh, the Lord of the Rings books um, are not interested in the same way with uh, the like the form and function of books. You know what I mean? Like the like Tolkien sets out to write a story, and he he sets out to write a story with like a certain moral message, and and his primary concern as he's writing the books is the the moral message and like the the strength of the narrative. And um, he's not interested in asking the question, um, what would a book if a book were operating at a hundred percent, you know, uh, firing on all thrusters, what would that book look like? But Peter Jackson and Co. When they're making the Lord of the Rings films, they are asking that question: What would a film, if a film were capital F film, look like? And I, I think I think you're 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 bang on uh, about like that that sort of like chronological context, which is that like. Peter Jackson and, and Co are sort of like operating in a in a like a landscape where that question is uh, more relevant and and more interestingly answerable than Tolkien because writing obviously has been around for ten thousand years. And I need to disagree with you more. I think we get to our media stuff when we actually <laughs> find a little friction because that's great. Um, I, I I'm going to do it more. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> And with that, Boromir asks for his sword, which he pulls close to his chest, one last strength before his journey to the other side. For some reason, it's, make it, it's making me think of Theoden remembering his strength by gripping his sword in the two towers. There's obviously martial and political implications of tying strength to steel as such, but I digress. Legolas and Gimli arrive, very sad-like, and there's tears on everyone's faces here. Mine too, these bits always get me emotional. That, and of course Aragorn's kiss, speak to the performance of masculinity which we discussed at the top of this episode. And in our very first episode, I mentioned how dirty fingernails are key to Lord of the Rings iconography, and Aragorn's dirt-caked nails as he cradles Boromir's head is just one of those images I will never shake. I also want to call out the music behind Boromir's last moments, which include the following lyrics. I do not love the sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only what they defend, which are lines from Faramir from the Two Towers book. We've made it. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for uh, 21-odd episodes now to be able to shoehorn this fucking passage into the podcast, and finally I can do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm very hyped. So I want to talk about this passage. Let's talk about this passage. The passage is as follows. And I just want to give some brief context here, which is that um, after uh, the hobbits and Gollum, all the Gollums briefly fucked off, stumble into Faramir and his men, the rangers of Athelion, in Athelion, um, Frodo and Faramir kind of have some back and forth where Frodo's not really admitting why it is that he's in Athelion, and Faramir is quite pointedly trying to figure out more. Um, and so far, all the only sort of uh, accords they've come to with one another is that uh, uh, Frodo and Boromir were on the same quest. So, given that, the passage is this. What in truth this thing is, I cannot yet guess. But some heirloom of power and peril it must be, a fell weapon perchance, devised by the Dark Lord. If it were a thing that gave advantage in battle, I can well believe that Boromir, the proud and fearless, often rash, 
ever anxious for the victory of Minas Tirith and his own glory therein, might desire such a thing and be allured by it. Alas, that he went on that errand. I should have been chosen by my father and the elders, but he put himself forward as being the older and the hardier, both true, and he would not be stayed. But fear no more. I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway. Not were Minas Tirith falling in ruin and I alone could save her, so using the weapon of the Dark Lord for her good and my glory. No, I do not wish for such triumphs, Frodo son of Drogo. Neither did the council, said Frodo, nor do I. I would have nothing to do with such matters. For myself, said Faramir, I would see the white tree and flower again in the courts of the kings, and the silver crown return, and Minas Tirith in peace, Minas Anor again as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have her loved for her memory, her ancientry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man, old and wise. So fear me not, I do not ask you to tell me more. I do not even ask you to tell me whether I now speak nearer the mark. But if you will trust me, it may be that I could advise you in your present quest, whatever that be. Yes, and even aid you. Reading this for the first time was like a moment of divine revelation for me. One of my favorite books of all time is Les Mis, and Les Mis is a beautiful book with beautiful, affecting writing, but it is not, I would say, a particularly efficient book. This passage for me really changed what fiction and what prose could be and do. I'll come back to this time and time again throughout this podcast, but I really want to start this off by saying, this passage is immense. In a few short lines, it sets out the moral core of the book, and it does so in utterly brilliant writing. Late at night when I'm sad, I'll open this bit up on my phone and read it to feel better. I think I probably have the better part of this chapter just straight up memorized I come back to it so much. And what this speech is, is an argument for Christ-like humility, pride, and moderation. And all of these things, I think, tend to come, quite rightly, with a lot of emotional and political baggage for people. Certainly, I don't agree with the vast majority of what Tolkien writes, but as a left-wing atheist, even I am compelled to stop and find the sentiment beautiful. What it's doing is this. It's arguing that war is a necessity to stop only the very greatest of evils. For Tolkien, that was Nazism. For us, it's capitalism. Yet despite this brutal and unfortunate necessity of war, war itself must not be valorized. It is a sad fact of reality, an unfortunate truth of life after the fall, after man has been exiled from the Garden of Eden. But just because we must contend with this reality does not mean that we should be proud of it, nor should we make it the sum total of who we are or what sustains us in life. This will be important later when Eowyn shows up in the story, so while I don't want to get too far into it now, I do want to make it clear that this is the point. War is an unfortunate necessity, not a means of human self-realization. It also sets up the value and significance of humility. Faramir describes his ideal future for Menas Tirith as a queen among many queens. 
which is to say not the sole empire seat of power, but one among many. A gleaming paragon of virtue among many gleaming paragons of virtue. He is arguing for the validity and value of a successful country without imperial expansion. Again, I'm going to put a pin in that thought because it's going to become very important later. And then, the real thing, Faramir rejects the ring. We will, of course, talk about this later and some of the meta-discourse surrounding it, but here and now we'll just leave it at. Faramir is able to reject the ring while Boromir isn't, because Faramir is a model of Christian humility. He recognizes that as an imperfect mortal, there are powers in the world outwith his ken, powers too great for him to wield. Rather than wield hubris like his brother and attempt to wrangle control of it, he sets himself back and apart from it. This is the grace and sacrifice that is, at least so far as Tolkien is concerned, inherent and essential to Christian praxis. Later in the book, Faramir will be condemned by his father for this, and Denethor will argue that Faramir's lack of pragmatism or sense of responsibility is why he rejects the ring. There is some truth to this, or at least I think there is, but what's ultimately important is the division between the moral and the temporal. Faramir and Denethor are both deeply cerebral characters, and the difference in their politics is a matter of ideological difference. But Boromir is not quite so strong in his analysis of the world. He is a fairly two-dimensional thinker. He must protect Gondor, and all else is secondary. Lyricizing this speech and then playing it over Boromir's death is, however unintentionally, a brilliant argument that the unexamined obligation to duty is something that is ultimately unsustainable. It might be fine in the war, but it cannot survive into peace. Getting back to Aragorn, he gets some new gear following Boromir's Vikingish funeral. Aragorn takes Boromir's vambraces, black wrist guards ordained with the White Tree of Gondor. This is not from the books nor the original script. It is, in fact, a Viggo Mortensen idea. He spoke to the idea as a sign of respect and commitment to Boromir, a pledge to ensure he won't let the White City fall. But I, also, but I personally think it also works as the first time Aragorn takes up the symbols of Gondor. And it's not just because he, the heir of Isildur, has finally returned to Gondor, but because of a promise he made to his friend Boromir. In fulfilling that small, intimate promise to one other person, he starts to step into his larger role as future king. It's the personal and the political bound up in each other. From here on, we will see Aragorn slowly start to step up more and more as both politician and martial leader, but also as a symbol of hope. In the next movie, he will bring hope to Rohan and its king, though he keeps none for himself. I think this, too, explains why Aragorn doesn't get Narsil or Anduril at Rivendell earlier in this movie like he does in the books. This moment, and Aragorn's first embrace of Gondor symbology, works better this way and gives a clear demarcation point of character at the end of the first film. The sword can be saved for later, the last of the floppy years he adorns to be King of Rabbits. <laughs> We can also briefly talk about how this film sets up the next one, The Two Towers. The second film will take a few beats to make sure it catches you up on what you need to know, but by and large it hits the ground running with story. That it can do so is a testament to how plot threads start spinning out here at the end of Fellowship. As we talked about a couple episodes ago, we have the White Hand of Saruman and Uru Company already established, and they are en route back to Isengard with Merry and Pippin in captivity. 
Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli have resolved to give chase and save their friends, and we see the three of them sprint off through the woods in pursuit. The three hunters, as they would become to be known. I'll probably come back to this in the two towers, but how these three are shot sprinting through Wilderland reminds me a lot of Daniel Day-Lewis and his companions in The Last of the Mohicans. The very last scene sees Frodo and Sam arrive at Amun Muil, which is of course the maze they'll be unable to navigate by themselves at the start of the two towers. And off in the distance you can see the marshes and the shadows of mountains, all destinations on our roadmap to Mordor. They talk about Strider looking after the others, which you could read to portend his small heroics or his ascent to kingship. And Sam's optimism about seeing their companions again establishes the key dynamic between Frodo and Sam for the next one and a half movies. Frodo is pretty sure it's a one-way ticket to Mount Doom, but Sam primarily thinks of it as a round trip. This is probably more elegantly referred to as hope. So pivoting over to our filmcraft portion... I gotta channel the machismo action bro streak within me and revel in this final battle at Amon Hen. This isn't going to be some profound analysis, but rather me just listing moments that made me mark out. Aragorn stabbing an Urukai with a dagger and then slamming its head into a pillar. Aragorn fighting up the steps of the Seat of Seeing, then leaping off to tackle a bunch of Isengard boys. And as he lays on the ground, Gimli and Legolas arrive, firing off axes and arrows as they come to Aragorn's aid. Legolas using an arrow to stab an orc in the face and then pulling it back, pulling back that same arrow into his bow and shooting it at another orc. There's also this fantastic moment right before the Horn of Gondor blows. It's a fairly wide shot in the trees. On the left hand of the screen is Legolas, fully bathed in sunlight, just firing off arrow after arrow, while on the right hand side of the screen, Aragorn is engaged in close quarters combat with an Uruk in the shade. Legolas mercs six Uruks while Aragorn struggles against the one, and Legolas even puts an arrow in the back of Aragorn's opponent to get an assist on that kill too. Then the Horn of Gondor blows, Boromir becomes target practice, and Lurtz is about to kill him until Aragorn swoops in for one last action sequence. Fun fact, because of the eye makeup, Lurtz actor Lawrence McCory had limited visibility and wasn't able to pull his punches for the scene, so Viggo Mortensen insisted that they go all out for the sequence. In wrestling parlance, this is known as working stiff, so a lot of the impacts and punches we see are genuine. Some of my favorite moments from this fight include Lurtz throwing his shield at Strider's neck and pinning him to a tree. He almost beheads the ranger with his sword right after. Aragorn sticking his dagger into Lurtz's leg, which you can briefly see sticking in and out of the leg. He pulls it out and licks the blood off of it before throwing it back at Aragorn. <laughs> which, here's another fun fact, Lurtz was supposed to throw the dagger wide so Vigo could avoid it. But his throw ended up being on the money, and Vigo had to react on the spot and deflect it with his sword. And this made the final cut of the movie. I feel like this deserves as much love as Vigo breaking his toe in the two towers. Oh, yeah. I mean, probably more even. And I feel like there's a lot to be said about like Hollywood accidents with dangerous weapons. But here I want to point out that even though there was like a perfectly understandable, well, not perfectly understandable, but basically understandable safety failure, um, that Vigo and the crew had been given so much time to properly train with these weapons that they were actually using probably saved his life. Like, yeah, if they just CGI'd the swords and had them hold green paper tower rolls or whatever, it technically would have been safer. But there's a level of like organic and more human interest involved in this that's important. And that organic interest and risk factor 
is balanced by proper training. Yeah, I'm not sure if we'll ever be able to really dive into it, but the amount of work that all these actors and the crew that helped, you know, prep them and, you know, set all this up um, is really astounding. And it, you just don't feel like you see that kind of care these days. Um, and this is kind of low hanging fruit, but uh, the Marvel Netflix shows weren't generally great outside of Daredevil. And the worst of them was definitely Iron Fist season one. And there's all sorts of problems with this show. And I feel kind of bad for Finn Jones because they wanted to make him the best martial artist in the Marvel universe, but gave him about a week and a half of training and then had him filming on set. And it looked Oof. atrocious. Oof. Um, and to his credit, you know, he got better for the second season or Defenders or whatnot. And I don't even really pin that on him. I think that was just, it just shows where production is, where that kind of thought or care or even thinking about, hey, maybe we should get a martial artist to be this martial arts guy in our movie, yeah. just not even considered. So I'm glad that you uh, made this point. I think it's very important. The product uh, churn kills. Mm -hmm. Despite the br brief brutality of the scene, I do like that in the end, it doesn't last too long. Lurtz is barely a mini-boss in the grand scheme of things, while Aragorn is destined for greatness. If he labors too much in fighting this one guy, especially after killing like 20 Uruks that are pretty much the same right before it, it might strain credulity. So Lurtz gets in a couple good attacks, but when Aragorn focuses in, it only takes a quick flurry before Lurtz is short ahead. Which allows me to circle back to the violence of these films, which again, as PG-13 fare in the year 2001, stood the fuck out. Aragorn chops off the dude's arm and head in quick succession, a gnarly finish to what was a gnarly film in all the best ways. The Horn of Gondor blows for its only time in the movies and for the final time in Middle-earth. We've talked long about the horns already and as they relate to Boromir, but I just want to focus in on how it breaks the big action sequence in half and suggests a shift in vibes. Sorry, I mean tone. <laughs> horns are often used to announce your arrival, whether as an individual or an army, or to announce departure, like Book Boromir leaving Rivendell. But in this moment, it is used as a siren or alert, a call to aid while also announcing your location to the enemy. As soon as it is blown, Aragorn rushes to the noise, but we also get this eagle-eyed shot panning through the woods, showing the Uruks also converging on Boromir. It signals aid and danger, duality, the horn cloven into two purposes. Mm. The vibe shift is made obvious by the score. Up until the horn blow, we were treated to some great action-adventure music, not unlike we heard in the Chamber of Mazarbul. But after the horn rings out its note, the score immediately switches to the Isengard light motif. The odds have finally cut up to the Fellowship. They were fighting admirably up until this point, and Frodo seems to have gotten away, but now it's time for tragedy. The Isengard theme plays, but slowly all the instruments except the percussion start to fade away. The drums continue unabated, once again twinged with metal, steel beating on steel like factories of Isengard, perfectly in sync with Lurtz's footfalls. Another step, another drumbeat, another second closer to Boromir's demise. And Lurtz knocks, fires, and nails his target. The score stops entirely. First silence, and then Boromir grunts, and Lurtz gives a satisfied growl. It's guttural, a moment where all the music has died, where no words could suffice. While Boromir would still continue to fight nobly and honorably and bravely, Boromir would die, his fate sealed in this moment. 
Um, sorry, all the gears in my head are just turning now that you said that the, the, the cloven horn of Gondor like represents this duality of aid and danger. Um, the reason the gears in my head are, are turning right now um, is because the horn of Gondor is a, an heirloom of the uh, House of Huron, which is the House of the Stewards. It's not an heirloom of the House of, uh, of Elendil. Um, it is something that was given to uh, uh, Huron of Aminarnan, uh, one of the, the, the sort of first uh, uh, hereditary, well, the first hereditary steward, um, and is passed down uh, to the heir uh, to the steward. So uh, from Huron to his son, from Denethor to his eldest son, Boromir. Um, and when when uh, Boromir dies, uh, Faramir becomes the the uh, uh, the heir, and so theoretically that that horn should have been passed to him had it not been cloven in two. And that duality that you're mentioning, the aid and danger, um, is is the duality between Boromir and Faramir. Um, Boromir represents this sort of building danger, um, and in Rivendell, he he sort of represents this potential for danger in a place that is broadly safe. And then Faramir represents the opposite, which is he represents aid and safety in a place that is broadly dangerous. Um, and I just hadn't thought about that before, um, and I I really really like that that imagery and and this like idea as well that like it's now cloven in two. It is a it is a relic that will no longer be passed down. Uh, to the the heirs of of, of Huron, the Huronianath, or like essentially Faramir's son Elberon, um, because there's sort of no need anymore for these relics, these these heirlooms of the the house of the stewards, because by the time Faramir and, and Eowyn are having kids, uh, Aragorn has already taken the the throne, and and the duty of the house of stewards, the 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 obligation of the stewards has has come to an end. Um, so I, I'm really excited about that. I hadn't clocked that before. But then there's also like kind of this this other element to it, which is that like Bormir's horn call here um, is ultimately actually answered by Rohan in Return of the King. Um, so Parth Galen is actually technically in Rohan's east of Net, um, is on the border with Gondor, but anything east of Anduin um, is, or uh, yeah, uh, west of Anduin rather, um, is 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 uh, Ro- uh, Rohan. So so Parth Galen is in Rohan, um, and. He is on the border with Gondor, and there's no aid that that comes to him. Nobody really truly comes to help, uh, or at least not in enough time to to save the day. But in Return of the King, at the border of the Pelennor Fields, the Rohirrim at last answer his call with a horn call of their own. Uh, so to quote George Lucas, it's like pottery, it rhymes. <laughs> Uh, no, the, thank, uh, the the whole bit about uh, Boromir and Faramir representing the two halves of the horn, I hadn't clocked that, um, but I think that it's perfect. I think it's totally perfect um, sim, sim, symbolism. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> uh, so I thank you for building on. I think co- that's one coherent thought that we came to together. <laughs> one shared brain cell. <laughs> <laughs> one is being generous, but... Uh, <laughs> I might be out on an island here, but the final scene with Frodo on the banks deciding what to do is one of my favorites. It's obviously a very emotional moment, but it has so many great little camera and soundtrack tricks going on that really elevate it for me. We find Frodo on the beach, and the camera is slowly zooming in on him and then pans down to the ring in his open palm. The gold ring on the silver chain shines in this moment. We cut back to Frodo's tear-marked face, and we get some Elijah Wood voiceover as he repeats the lines he said in Moria. 
I wish none of this had ever happened to me, he starts. But as if by surprise, Gandalf's words respond, so do all who live to see such times. All we can do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. I love, love, love Woods acting here, like I said. He's surprised to hear Gandalf's words going through his head. The way Elijah's eyes and eyebrows just loosen up as his old mentor's words play is genuinely fantastic acting to me. And the mise-en-scene, again, the shit on the screen. Jackson uses dissolves here, as Frodo on the banks dissolves to Gandalf and Moria, and then back to Frodo. But look at the screen space they are occupying. Frodo's head and shoulders perfectly fade into Gandalf's big head, (laughs) with his hair falling heavy on both sides. They take the same exact amount of screen real estate as the shots fade between each other. All of this helps build to a triumphant bar of concerning hobbits as a Mm. resolute Frodo tightens his hand around the ring, shoves it into his pocket, and pushes the boat into the water. Of course, we can't forget Sam, our dear Sam, who tracks Frodo to the banks and rushes out to him despite not being able to swim. Sam sinks below the water, and the screen is appropriately blue as Sean Astin kicks and struggles as he sinks. We see Sam's hand limp before Frodo's hand dives in to grab him. Sam's hand tightens around Frodo's wrist, and he's pulled up to safety. Frodo pulls Sam up here, which makes me think of, think of the end of all things, Sam pulling Frodo up inside Mount Doom, saving one another from a watery and fiery g- grave, respectively. Yeah, I mean, I like I'm I'm keeping silent during all of this because I really can't think about it too hard without crying. But uh, you know, there is this sort of oh, sorry, I'm holding it together. And um, there is this like th- this kind of beauty of like, and um, they face they truly face all of the dangers of of the world together. You know, they go from the Emin Wheel, which is the highest points, to the Marshes of the Dead, which is the lowest points. Well, even Moria, uh, even lower than that. Um, and, you know, they go through fire and they go through water and they go through ice together um, and, and to have this kind of ongoing, um, you know, kind of intimacy and closeness and like the holding of a hand, not just as like a physical kind of moment of, of um, being saved, but also sort of an emotional moment of, of being saved. And and there is this like physical intimacy as as this proxy for this wider emotional and even moral intimacy. And I just think it's just just brilliant, just lovely. When Sam is pulled aboard the boat, I swear, it is way sunnier than it has been since we were back in the Shire. Maybe it's just in contrast to the blue underwater scene a second ago, or the reflection of sunlight on water, but it makes me think of Sam's ending lines at the end of the next movie, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. The sun here is brighter as sympathetic nature, then in honor of Sam's act of loyalty and love. Before the cries and hugs begin, Sam says he made a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee, and I don't mean to. Sam doesn't say it was a promise to Gandalf, but that is, of course, the antecedent of his anecdote. Much like Frodo heard Gandalf's words in his heads before he set sail, I can imagine Sam hearing Gandalf's lines in his own head as he raced to catch up to Mr. Frodo. It really hammers home what Gandalf means to the hobbits broadly and to these two hobbits specifically. After the Sam and Frodo bit, we see Boromir's funeral, such as it is. It's pretty much an all-CGI shot, but I still like it, and it looks great, at least for its time and consistent with these films' aesthetics. As the three hunters prepare for what's next, we get a few bars of the Fellowship leitmotif signaling this film's denouement. 
We saw it used as a bookend musical cue in Moria, and we see it do so again here. And well, since we haven't mentioned it yet, part of the reason the Fellowship theme goes so hard, why it creates a sense of heroism, is that it is a series of major chords moving through a minor progression. It creates a heroic build and a smidgen of bittersweetness, which summarizes the story thus far. So mostly as a reminder, since we talked about this last episode, but in case this is somehow your first time listening to us, just want to reiterate that these scenes we talked about today are combining the last chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring with the first chapter of The Two Towers. Yeah, um, both the movie and the book and with Frodo and Sam preparing to face the Emin Wheel, but the movie and the book necessarily differ in one crucial way. When the Two Towers volume picks up the story, we don't hear from Frodo and Sam for 250 pages. We genuinely don't know anything about the success of their story for an entire book. So if you're reading it for the first time, or if you're not at all familiar with the story, that's a massive amount of time to be without these two main characters. This Me saying this is not a value judgment on the movies for not following that structure, but I do think it's really, really interesting how long that silence lasts, and I kind of just want to flag it up here. Yeah, I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, but uh, we talk about how, you know, the texts aren't really like form and function on display. Um, but as much as they are, I think this might be the best example because at a certain point, Aragorn and company and all the kingdoms and realms of Middle Earth are kind of blindly trusting in Frodo to do his task with very little movement or word of his movements aside from when he runs into Faramir later. Um, so I kind of like that this is kind of that... Um, blind trust uh, aspect in the books, because uh, I, be I don't know if this is in the books, I don't remember clearly, but at the beginning of Return of the King, the film, it, they kind of give the impression that Gandalf can see Frodo's progress, like he's passed beyond my sight, or yeah. uh, you know, he says stuff like that when they're in Minas Tirith. Uh, so there's kind of like a more sense that they have some idea that they've moved, and obviously Faramir gave Gandalf an update uh, following Askiliath being taken. So you know, they're kind of aware that Frodo's theoretically moving closer every day to uh, Mordor, but in the books, they have to just trust to hope that that's happening, which I think accurately summarizes what the characters are actually going to. Um, and us as book readers are also in that space where we don't know if he's actually moving closer or not. Yeah. I mean, so in, in the books, um, as you point out, Faramir is the only one to sort of have any word of Frodo and Sam. Uh, Gandalf has no idea, but um, it is Faramir announcing that he has seen Frodo and Sam to both uh, Gandalf and Denethor. That is the start of Denethor's ultimate fall because he realizes, and again, I would argue quite rightly, that fucking crazy to send two hobbits to do this. And he's like, well, if this is the hope of mankind, then we're shit out of luck. Um, and so I think you're right. Like, you know, taking, you know, this is the, this is the moment of the books actually using the, the like form of books very well, because this like lingering silence, this 250 page lingering silence builds suspense in a way I don't think very many other choices could have. Also, with another apology to Emily, I'm going to quote Aragorn because <laughs> he has a line here in the text that I do like. Um, and it's there, it's kind of the book take on the, you know, we will not abandon uh, Mary and Pippin to torment and death. I don't know if then maybe that line's in the books as well. But what he says is, but come, 
With hope or without hope, we will follow the trail of our enemies, and woe to them if we prove the swifter. We will make such a chase as shall be accounted a marvel among the three kindreds, elves, dwarves, and men. Fourth, the three hunters. <laughs> yeah, so in the movies, this just becomes like, as you say, let's hunt some orcs, which kind of makes me howl with laughter, and not just because someone on Twitter said it's a man, I feel like a woman by Shania Twain, um, but because it's kind of this accidentally brilliant articulation of the difference between the books and the films. Um, like, I'm not knocking the end of the films, and I think the line in the movies does what it needs to, but it's just hilarious to me that, like, the line gets basically boiled down to the action, the point of, like, the, the call to action, and in the book, it's like okay we're gonna link this alliance between the three different races we're going to you know we're going to take part we're going to talk about this longer journey um, and we're going to at some point uh you know have this rallying call of yet another new form of fellowship and in the movies it's like yeah let's let's go kill some fucking things oh that's interesting um i think that's right on the ball uh i had not actually taken it that way um i just thought perhaps the screenwriters thought fourth the three hunters was a little <laughs> not in line with the dialogue as they had written i mean they've written some really goofy sentences in these movies but it just wouldn't feel of a piece so they turned instead of fourth the three hunters they turned hunt into the verb um, but i guess necessarily the direct object of that <laughs> becomes yeah. oryx and then it has the violence um what's it called the articulation of violence as you say so um, i had never thought about that but i think you're on the money 100 percent Woohoo. So lastly, why not end our final episode on the Fellowship of the Ring proper with the lament for Boromir in full. Through Rohan over fen and field where the long grass grows, the west wind comes walking, and about the walls it goes. What news from the west, O wandering wind, do you bring to me tonight? Have you seen Boromir the tall, by moon or by starlight? I saw him ride over seven streams, over waters wide and gray. I saw him walk in empty lands until he passed away. Into the shadows of the north, I saw him then no more. The north wind may have heard the horn of the son of Denethor. O Boromir, from the high walls westward I looked afar, but you came not from the empty lands where no men are. From the mouths of the sea the south wind flies, from the sand hills and the stones. The wailing of the gulls it bears, and at the gate it moans. What news from the south, O sighing wind, do you bring to me at eve? Where now is Boromir the fair? He tarries, and I grieve. Ask not of me where he doth dwell, so many bones there lie, on the white shores and the dark shores under the stormy sky. So many have passed on Anduin to find the flowing sea. Ask of the north wind news of them the north wind sends to me. O Boromir, beyond the gate, the seaward road runs south, but you came not with the wailing gulls from the Gracie's mouth. From the gate of kings the north wind rides, and past the roaring falls, and clear and cold about the tower its loud horn calls. What news from the north, O mighty wind, do you bring to me today? What news of Boromir the bold, for he is long away? Beneath Ammon Hen I heard his cry, their many foes he fought, his cloven shield, his broken sword, they to the water brought. His head so proud, his face so fair, his limbs they laid to rest, and Raros, golden Raros falls, bore him upon its breast. O Boromir, the tower of guard shall ever northward gaze, 
to Raros Golden Raros Falls until the end of days. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. Which Manuclear Bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me continuing to lament Boromir over at JRR Tweeting on Twitter. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Nevertheless, Aragorn raises his sword like a cross, not unlike the Nazgul, and yells, Never tell me the odds. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'll take that snort as an endorsement. (laughs) Yeah.